Hey folks, welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman, and this week's episode is great for you if you've ever been frustrated by collaboration with your peers. We are speaking with the author of the brand new book, The Way Forward PLC at Work and the Bright Future of Education. This is a book that is by Dr. Anthony Muhammad, who is, um, you know, just an incredible leader in the world of K-12 education. He's been a practitioner for nearly 20 years. He's served both as an educator and as a principal in middle and in high schools. He's got an incredible um, repertoire of books to his name. This week, we're really focusing on the way forward, but you're going to be able to learn more about Dr. Anthony Muhammad's work by heading over to the show notes. While you're in that space, learn more about picking up a copy of The Way Forward, PLC at Work. Welcome to the show, Dr. Muhammad. Well, listeners, it's a great honor to be speaking today with Dr. Anthony Muhammad. We're going to talk a little bit about um, you know, your new book, which I am really excited to dig into. The name of that book is The Way Forward. It's your new book, but it's not your only book. You're no stranger to the world of publishing. Uh, your leadership career has seen you offer so much in terms of research, books, presentations. For fans of any of your other work who are already a little bit familiar with your approach, your ethos, your beliefs, what might this latest book have in common with earlier works that you've done? So some of your fans are saying, great, I really love your thinking on this, and I'm going to get a little bit more of it in the book, The Way Forward. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. and. Uh, for giving me this platform to kind of express to your listeners um, what I think my new book uh, offers them. And I appreciate what you do. And I appreciate everyone who's taken a few moments to listen to this. Uh, this, is, this is what the book looks like. It's called The Way Forward. And the way I describe it, it's familiar but different. There's, there's, it's definitely different, but there's a familiarity with it. So let me kind of start with the familiarity. I never sought to be an author or to be a speaker or consultant. I came into the profession as an activist, teacher, and educator. Well, the first um, outlet for my activism was as a classroom teacher. And then it evolved into being a school administrator. And in 2001, I got a chance to meet a gentleman who really saved my life or enhanced my life. He, he, was the late Dr. Richter Four, and he introduced me to the professional learning communities at work model that he developed with Dr. Bob Aker. And what I saw in that model was a platform or a pathway to what my heart gravitated me towards with my activism. I said, wow, this is it. I have the desire, I have the efficacy, I have the optimism. I thought I was a pretty good teacher and pretty good administrator, but now I have a, a structure to live this. And got a chance to lead a school uh, in Metro Detroit for six years. Became a National Blue Ribbon School with the first urban school honored as a model PLC. And in 2007, I left that position to fulfill another stage of my um, uh, activism, which was to work directly with schools with technical assistance. And honestly, my first introduction into consulting was the technical aspect, how to develop teams data analysis, 
uh, creating systems and schedules for interventions. And what I noticed was that some schools were ready to benefit from that and some weren't. And I really got not angry, but I got discouraged. And that's what drove me to the study of school culture. And that's where most people know my work. It wasn't because I had this big desire to, to study school culture. It was I knew that the systems and strategies that could really help more kids grow, develop, and advance, that they already existed. But it was this, this kind of atmosphere that human beings had created that either was fertile for those ideas or they were hostile towards the ideas. And that's what drove me to write several books on the topic of school culture. So I had the practitioner experience, the technical leadership, but most of my work has been the last 15, 16 years has been around culture. Well, this book is kind of a combination of both. And it kind of emerged out of COVID. When Rick DeFore passed away in 2017, uh, he battled lung cancer for three years and he had left some burdens on my shoulders. And he left burdens on other people's shoulders too. But what he asked me to do specifically was to push through a concept he defined as PLC light. He called it the diet version. It will be people that have access to the real thing, but only embrace what they were comfortable enough or the disruptions that were comfortable enough to make some progress, but not full progress. He told me when he passed that that was his biggest dying regret, that today we have over 150 PLC books on every subject you can think of. We do sold out conferences. We do streaming video. We do podcasts. We do technical support. We have coaching academies. But yet, we only have just over 600 model PLC schools. So how could this concept be so research-affirmed, practitioner-driven, and shown such great success, but only 600 out of about 150,000 American schools had fully embraced it. So he put it on my shoulders to push the envelope, to finish his work. And I sat on that for about three years, and then COVID hit. And while sitting in my home, thinking about like, man, like this is messed up. How do we get out of this? His words came back to me, that this was a ripe opportunity to reintroduce people to something that they had taken for granted for over 20 years. To show them how a lot of our wounds were self-inflicted. Nobody's forbidden us to collaborate. Nobody's forbidden us to sit down and identify what Marzano would call a guaranteed and viable curriculum. Nobody's forbidden us to assess kids formatively. Nobody says assessments have to be summative exclusively. We have the right to respond to students' needs, and the research has evolved so much over the past 26 years that from John Hattie through Bob Marzano to Dylan Willem, and the list goes on and on, have affirmed Shirley Horde, Milby McLaughlin, that this is the pathway forward. So this book is a rallying cry to introduce us to our journey to this point the seminal moment uh, post-COVID and how if we don't take this opportunity to right the ship, because there's a lot that's not right with the ship right now. We have an epic and generational teacher shortage. Teacher morale is at an all-time low. 
For the first time in the 21st century, the average ACT score of American students is under 20. The number two and number four reason for students' uh, uh, absence from school is anxiety and depression. We need to wake up that the way forward is with each other through a process that is affirmed to have a deep impact on kids. And I try to show in the book how the research has proven that a collaborative culture improves teacher uh, morale, satisfaction. It improves teacher retention. It closes student achievement gaps. So this is kind of a back to the future. And we looked at it in three dimensions, past, present, but most of the book is spent on what the future could look like if we get out of our own way and stop committing all of these self-inflicted wounds. That's really powerful. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, I think when we talk about almost, you know, sometimes I hear it referred to as radical imagination. Sometimes I hear it referred to as science, you know, science fiction thinking Mm -hmm. that we have to be able to picture a better future, right? Like if you cannot even imagine it, it's really difficult to get stuck in the mindset that you currently are. You know, you talked about when you had to pivot to doing some more of the technical learning, understanding, data analysis. I'm wondering, you know, I've come across a lot of research that talks about when we are trying to be drivers of change. Of course, the research and the data is helpful, but what often helps us as humans is really connecting to story and mm-hmm. that even if it's sort of, you know, as you were mentioning, we know that anxiety and teen depression at an all-time high, but I find when we talk about that, we have to personalize it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I really think sometimes the media is also coming for teachers and coming for education mm-hmm. in a way that I've never seen before. And I find, you know, folks who have never worked in education, they they don't quite understand how much schools have changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I- I'm wondering in the work that you do, if there's a story or an anecdote that's powerful for you to share in helping people see, because sometimes, you know, I, I recognize if we're talking about healthy team dynamics, some folks have genuinely never experienced a team that is authentically collaborative. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you have a, an anecdote about here is something that helped that team pivot or shift, or when you are talking about true collaboration, because I think sometimes people think like, well, I was sitting around a table with other people, we were collaborating. And it's not just the space that defines collaboration. Um, is there a story that kind of brings to life a little bit, like the, the shift that you are really talking about here? Absolutely. And I'll kind of pivot. There's a lot in the first part of your question that I think is worth a response. And a lot of it is the external part of and the challenges. That's a part of what in the book I call the self-inflicted wounds. There's always been conservatives and liberals. There have always been approach, uh, uh, school choice, public. That, that's always been a part, but it's, it's become weaponized and poisonous in today's environment. And Stephen Covey talks about your circle of influence and your circle of concern. The PLC process focuses on your circle of influence. And those are things we have direct control over. But there's also a need in this context to also focus on our circle of concern. If critical decisions that are antithetical to our purpose keep being made at the federal level, 
the state level. These are all having an effect on how teachers and schools and leaders and communities do their business. What I'm encouraging people to do in, in summary is don't be punching bags. Democracy only works when there's a balanced debate. And right now the debate is not balanced. Mm-hmm. And we're so caught up in our own inner conflict that we can't even deal with the challenges that are coming externally because we haven't even come to a level of unity internally about our purpose, our direction, our passion, and what's important. So it's hard to go to the negotiating table with the government or the community to come to some sort of agreement if we're not even in unity internally. So as Covey said, if you focus on your circle of influence, it expands your circle of, it actually increases it and your circle of concern becomes smaller. So to go back to your issue about teams, collaboration is not new. As long as there's been two human beings on the planet, there's been collaboration. If you break down the word collaborate, it literally translates into co-labor. It's just doing your labor together. Part of the problem with collaborative teams is that they haven't defined what their labor is. The labor in the PLC is not organizing the field trip. It's not talking about the PTA dance. So what makes the PLC at work philosophy, the one championed by Rick DeFore and Bob Aker, is that the focus of the collaboration is a fixation and a veracity for student learning. Not the process, but the outcome. And they said if teams were to collaborate, they do four things. They clarify what they wanted students to know and be able to do. They would create assessment tools that would gather evidence on students' progress towards those clear learning targets. They would create a system of support to give kids extra time and support who have not hit those targets yet. And they would create systems of extension that allow kids who are ready to go deeper into that concept, move up Webb's depth of knowledge to allow them those opportunities. And that's what they would collaborate about. So perhaps a lot of the folks who are struggling with collaboration don't know what they're collaborating about or what their focus of collaboration is. So those four questions become the training wheels that teams use to focus. I wrote an article years ago about increasing team efficacy around PLC, and I made two recommendations. Number one, keep your team solely focused on the four questions. Have the discipline not to use it as therapy or venting or a way to to express your beef about something. There's a place for that, but not doing your team meeting. And speak of no one negatively. No pessimism, no negative talk. And I use the work of Goddard and Hoy in their efficacy work, that if you do those things, you'll increase your team's efficacy. But it takes discipline. It takes focus. And it takes a razor-sharp focus that students le- student learning is non-negotiable. The target is here. It's not going anywhere. Now, what do we need to do to get kids there? Don't talk about the parents. Don't talk about how low they are. Don't talk about the government's latest decision. Don't talk about the board or central office. There's another venue for that. Keep your team and your collaboration pure. So I had a team, they used to call them the drama queen team when I was a principal because they, um, they had a hard time with those two things. 
And I took them to a PLC uh, two-day training that Rick and Becky DeFore were doing a long time ago in a light bulb. And they needed to hear from somebody else. And I made the commitment to sit with them for the next couple of months in their collaborative team meeting. Because the book that, that we use for PLC is called Learning by Doing. You can't get better at something until you do it. And as they started to see the enlightenment that happened from engaging with their colleagues on a common set of objectives, as they started to see students and started to see uh, variations in the impact of certain practices. So if you use the practice on this target, you use technology and it really worked. They started to see the power of sharing those effective strategies to put tools in each other's toolbox. It was the best PD they'd ever been a part of. And to start to really focus on student by student, target by target at a granular level, they could start to feel really satisfied and um, gratified to see the impact and to see kids that they thought were hopeless start to grow and develop. And my drama queen team became one of the best teams in my school because they needed some coaching. They needed some redirection. So I want to say to administrators who are, who are listening, don't give up on a team that's struggling. I'd recommend the work of Tom Maney and Tisha Fromby and others on coaching teams. Sometimes teams need coaching. And there's a new version of Learning by Doing this coming out in May. And there's a whole chapter we've added about coaching collaborative teams. So... I, you know, I really appreciate that because I think what you were saying earlier about we don't want to pigeonhole students, you know, you mentioned the world like irredeem irredeemable. And mm -hmm. I think if we want teachers to, again, see their students, see their learners as capable of change, we need as educators to feel that from our leaders, like that's great mm -hmm. modeling. And your example about like stepping in just to disrupt the flow because I think like when you are in a rut or you're in a team that's ventured into a dynamic that's no more useful, it can be really tricky to get out of that pattern. Um, so I, I really and, like and, the and, example and, of that. And just a footnote, Shirley Horde in a study she did in 1997 showed that teams that get off of the focus of student learning, it can actually be counterproductive. If you're not going to focus on the right things, the gathering of a group of frustrated people with no focus will actually make your culture worse rather than better. They're almost better off not collaborating at all. Interesting. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, and bear with me because I know this might come across as cheesy, but sometimes when I'm running a workshop, I will physically keep one chair empty. And I'll start off by saying, like, I just want you to picture one of your students as taking up the space. You know, in a lot of our adult gatherings. It's just us. The students aren't there. And I, I do think sometimes like that can make it difficult to remember, yeah. like, as you're saying, this is what it's about. So I try to do that. And I'll come back to that empty chair every once in a while. Like, what is it that student that you picked? What is it that they really want us to be thinking about or checking that we're not making an assumption about in this moment? I have found it helpful. Um, I'm wondering if you have any other like nudges or little tips for teams who are, you know, we, we could use that like reminder. Um, mm -hmm. Are there other ways that you're thinking like this can be a powerful reminder of this is what this discussion is about. 
let's come back to, uh, you know, the heart and the crux of it, as you're saying. I usually start kind of when I'm doing some linear learning, like over multiple, multiple days, we start with a discussion and agreement about the term all. It's a pretty, that's, that's the highest threshold you can reach, meaning there are no acceptable casualties. And I asked him to think about young people in their lives, whether it's their children or a niece or a nephew or a godchild or a brother or sister. Think about the most precious child in your life. What wouldn't you do as the adult who loves that child to advocate in advance for them and advance their growth and development? Well, the parents that send you theirs don't expect anything less. So I try to personalize it. Uh, through a Chinese proverb that reads, a parent is only as happy as his or her saddest child. And things like no child left behind, which if measured schools on one culturally biased standardized test with a scarlet letter or a badge of honor or a badge of shame based upon their comparisons. And there are schools and states that are getting A's with 40% proficiency, 50%. And they think that they've like arrived when half their kids aren't even proficient on a basic state literacy or numeracy exam. We've lost our way. So I tried, one of the strategy I use is to, what does all mean? And when you go about your work, do you, do you go about your work being consciously aware of that concept? And which ones of your kids are you willing to sacrifice? And I mm. even encourage them, if there's some kids you've already written off, call their parents, tell them, you know what? Anthony's just, he's, he's hopeless. Thank you for sending him, but he'll kind of just flounder for the rest of the year because I've given up on him. I just wanted to tell you that. And I asked who wants to make that call. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's powerful. And, you know, I, I think when positioned that way, certainly my experience has been, I'm very fortunate that I feel like I have worked with educators who they would never say, I see this child as, you know, hopeless. But I think it's it's really critical sometimes to think about behaviors, practices in schools where even if I would never say this, what's happening mm -hmm. that is running counter to I would never. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So we do it all the time. I don't want to give up my grading practices. Grades do more to discourage kids to engage than it does to to, to encourage. So a lot of our practice run counter to what we claim openly. So I totally agree with you. The way forward, I think, you know, is going to clarify or again, just continue to nudge people to think what actually is a healthy PLC? Mm -hmm. And my concept of a PLC Maybe how have I been like misinformed? Can you talk a little bit about the clarity that comes with uh, digging into your book, The Way Forward? Great question. Um, in, in, I believe it was chapter four, I did an historical account of the evolution of professional learning. Rick DeFore and Bob Baker did not invent the term or the concept of professional learning communities. It's been a continuum of an advancement of work. So the whole concept started with Peter Senge, with his publishing of a book called The Fifth Discipline. And Senge saw organizations like a body, and bodies have systems, circulatory, muscular, skeletal. And Senge's argument was, 
these systems are really useless except their connection to one another. What good is to have a healthy heart with no muscular system? What good is to have a great skeletal system without a muscular system? What good is it to have a brain without a neurological system? I mean, these things are connected. So he said that effective organizations engage in the fifth discipline, which is moving it forward together. So that's what makes this body worth it. That's why when some people pass, they can donate their organs because without all those systems connected, that healthy heart with a body that's passed doesn't do that person any good. So it means that all of us have a purpose and we're connected. And that's what makes it effective. And he used the term learning organizations. Well, Thomas Sergiovanni, who's an education professor, enamored with Singe's work, felt that the term learning organization was too sterile. It was more corporate. And he said, the gathering of human beings often goes beyond the term organization, like a family or a neighborhood. And he said the better concept to actualize this for educators is called it a community. And he dropped off organization and called it a, 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 a learning community. So it went from learning organizations to learning community. But two ladies came along and just really flipped it to the next level. Milby McLaughlin from Stanford and Shirley Horde, who said, well, this is all good, Sir Giovanni, to come together to talk. But what really makes collaboration powerful is if it focuses on the improvement of professional practice related to student learning. And they coined the phrase professional learning community. Well, Rick DeFore and Bob Aker in 1998, with the first publishing of PLC at Work, coined the term professional learning communities at work. They asked the question, if educators were to come together as professionals and communities of learners, what would the work that they would do look like if learning was their focus? And that's where the four critical questions of the PLC at work process. So I wanted to differentiate. What I advocate for is the latest iteration, the advancement of the literature called Professional Learning Communities at Work. No disrespect to Singe or Sir Giovanni or Horde or McLaughlin, but research evolves. So the way before and Aker saw it is that the collaborative team is the unit where the professional learning community at work process is implemented. So can you have a good team that doesn't focus on learning? Absolutely good. But that wouldn't be a professional learning community. That'd be a good committee. Or it could be a sunshine committee. It could be the staff um, retirement committee. We collaborate all the time. But what makes the PLC at work model unique is that the focus is a collective sense of accountability to ensure that students learn. And that's what activates. So you can have, I love my PLC. And Rick DeFore wrote about that the term has become so ubiquitous because it's been used to describe any gathering of three or four people. They call it a PLC. And that's not what a PLC is. It's a community of learners focused on student learning who are engaged and four critical practices that they engage in collectively. And that's the way forward. So I hope I was kind of clarified that, that you can have a great team. Teams existed before PLC. 
I was a middle school teacher. We're part of interdisciplinary teams that focused on the turning points research in the middle school whole child concept. So PLC didn't invent collaboration. It invented, or Bob Aker and Rick DeFore extended some research that already existed into what would teachers and administrators and systems do specifically if learning was their focus and the platform or unit of action was the collaborative team. So hopefully that clarified. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, again, it's that reminder of there's a lot of edu speak, right? Mm-hmm. And it is sometimes I find we need to almost step back. When I say this term, what are you thinking about? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find sometimes we skip that step of this word that is everywhere, comes up in our conversations all the time. Do we actually have any kind of shared definition around it? Mm-hmm. Or are there a lot of assumptions? Or has it just simply been a really long time since we've done the maintenance to check in and see this thing that we think is this? How do our mm-hmm. practices, how do our actions either support that or run counter? Um, so uh, again, I, I just kind of appreciate you talking about Again, you know, there, there, there's a systematic approach to this um, because, again, I, I think sometimes a lot of educators are trying to help younger learners appreciate the value of collaboration. And yet, even for the adult learners, we haven't necessarily thought about our practices, our flow with that, and um, what it means for us to collaborate or for us to um, really make sure that we've got a target goal, that we have any process that helps us make sense of that. Absolutely. And I like to add, um, a big part of that um, is an anti-intellectualism among leaders. In chapter 10 of Learning by Doing, one of the five critical requirements of central office in effective PLS implementation is the development of a shared understanding in a common vocabulary. We have folks who come They'll sit for two or three days and clap and never pick up a book, never in, in, enlighten themselves. They get a minuscule understanding of the concept and recalibrate their entire district around a novice surface level understanding. That's almost malpractice. Mm. You mentioned something earlier that I want to touch on, and and that's earlier in your career, your role of being a middle school teacher. And I've heard you say in other interviews that um, your experience as a middle school teacher is something that you are most proud of. And that was sort of music to my ears because, you know, Dr. Muhammad, you're speaking to, I don't even know how many people in a year, uh, you know, you've got a huge circle of influence, I would say. Um, And sometimes I do get concerned when, you know, like there are edu celebrities, we live and learn in that world. And there are some folks who have really never even stepped foot in a classroom and have tremendous influence and, you know, who are who are listened to. And I, I really do think that classroom experience, it, like nothing is more valuable, I think, in terms of really understanding what is the reality of working with young learners. And you mentioned, you know, all of the interplaying systems. I really think you can only get that if you've been in a classroom. Sure. Um, so it, I, I'm it, wondering, oh, go ahead. It definitely helps. It definitely helps. I have a context and an experience of what it was like to not just be a teacher, but a teacher who worked in a culture of isolation. 
So I've, I've seen both sides of it and I've lived it. But I would like to say that there are some people that I really, really respect. And I think we have a lot of valuable things to say. We'll have it. Michael Fullen has been a titan in the influence of my practice. He's never been a teacher. He's never been a principal. But he studies it and he's sincere in analyzing how it could be better. But it certainly is a great benefit to me because I lived it. And to be able to understand a curriculum that's a mile wide and an inch deep and struggling with narrowing it down to really tangible learning targets, being a part of a dysfunctional department, having an administrator who got fired and I didn't even know he was gone for three months. Wow. I didn't even know. Um, Cause that's how isolated we were. And I wasn't into office gossip um, to have a district that really had no focus on strategic professional learning. It was the Edu celebrity that came to the civic center and gave a, pre- a presentation. We went back to our school. Um, so, but also the positive experiences, the connecting with students face-to-face, the informal networks I created. I did collaborate, but it wasn't a part of our formal systems. I had some good informal teacher ment- mentors. Mrs. Witherspoon was one of them. She was an experienced social studies teacher who took me under her wing and we just planned together just because we wanted to help kids. We did an after school club just because we wanted to do it. So I've seen both sides of the best of being a practitioner, but also the worst. So being a classroom teacher, really, I mean, it was honestly, it was very fulfilling. And you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the tipping point and the 10,000 hours. I don't know if I did 10,000 hours, but it got so comfortable that I could almost do it in my sleep. That's how good I felt about it. Now, of course, you want to continuously improve, but it was my comfort zone. So now I get a chance to teach adults. I'm still a teacher. I just teach adults. So thinking about learning targets, methodology, assessment, I do all of that during a keynote during the breakout, and I, I got my feet wet being a classroom teacher. And I also equally loved being an administrator. I loved being a principal because now I could take the vision from my kids and scale it up to a whole school. Now I get to take a vision and scale it up to a whole district, a whole state. I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Um, in a couple of weeks to work with their Ministry of Education. I get to influence whole governments in their decisions. So I'm kind of living the dream. And this is year 34 for me. And I feel like I got a good 30 left. If, if, if I, I may be the first hit 60 years, and that's my goal. Well, you know, you're absolutely prolific. And, you know, in closing, I'd like to ask you something that you know, I, I feel like uh, I love that you talked about, you know, sometimes we have to anti-intellectualize things. So I, I'd love for you to just break this down because you're also, you know, in the short time that we've been speaking, your capacity for making connections between researchers and key research is mighty. <laughs> like That okay. is definitely a strength of yours. And I'm wondering for folks who are, you know, again, we talk about being evidence-based, digging into the research. I think it's one thing to be doing the reading, or again, now that we've got tools that we can listen to research, um, that's kind of one part of it. But 
you almost have this craft or this artistry in terms of seeing, as you mentioned earlier, I want to build on it, right? It's not about just taking the research that maybe is, you know, 10, 12, 15 years old, letting that say everything, but having it grow, recontextualizing it. And I'm wondering if you have like a method or a process, like even like kind of like a journaling technique that you have that's enabled you to think in that way and continue to make those connections. Thank you. A couple of things I'd recommend. Number one is pretty abstract, but it's also very powerful. You have to really care. I really, really, really love kids. I do. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and I saw some of my best friends become victims of the system. I have six kids of my own. So I took it to the personal level. Um, And I saw a system where learning was invited, but also failure was palatable. I just knew that they could do better than that. My mother was a teacher. Mm. I never heard my mother speak poorly of kids. She spoke poorly of her administrator sometimes, but she was always, she spoke with this. She didn't bring that tired, bitter teacher. She was, she was a professional's professional. So I kind of learned a lot of that from, but I just really love kids. And you have to be honest about your own inadequacies. I don't know everything. So that's where literature comes in. And one advantage I have naturally is that I don't like really narrative text. I like informational text. I don't read for pleasure. I read for information. So all these books in my office, I don't have one novel. So all my Harry Potter fans, more power to you. I'm going to read a book like this or learning by doing or taking action or uh, what works in schools and new art and science of teaching. Uh, that's what I love to read. So I made a dedication early in my career to spend 30 minutes to an hour a day reading something from the profession. And a few quick things your readers could do to, if you don't want to do that much, I highly recommend you, if, if you don't, if you're not a member of ASCD, you can sign up for what they call the ASCD Smart Brief, which is a email blast every day of the most recent happenings in education, new findings. So I knew about the anxiety and depression being number two and number four from Smart Brief. Education Week is another great periodical that you can get electronically. I get it, I review it, bam, ooh, that's interesting. I'd also recommend if you want to go deeper into like real research, academia.edu is 60 bucks a year. And they put a new study in my email box every single day. You spend 20, 30 minutes a day doing that over the course of a 34-year career, you're going to have a little Rolodex to go back to. So it's not about going to some training at Harvard. Do that. But you're going to retain more and be more, more beneficial if you just do a little bit every day. And it's just become a habit over a 34-year period of time. So caring and having enough humility to look for ideas that others have produced. Process. I even read people who write totally against my values. Um, Charles Murray, who believes public schools are a waste of time and that we educate too many 
kids he believe aren't aren't that smart. Brian Kaplan uh, uh, wrote a book about uh, the ending public schools as we know it is too expensive. It doesn't do any good. So I even read people who have a very different, almost hostile take just to see what their thinking is. And do they have any valid points? Or if it's invalid, how do I defend my core values? But you got to know both sides. So it's not just having an echo chamber where you only read what aligns with your values. Are you willing to be a true scholar? In 20, 30 minutes, an hour a day is plenty. See, I knew you were going to have a good answer to that. And um, yeah, I mean, the the habit... The habit and the pairing with the mindset makes a lot of sense to me because I think, as you said, it's that, am I going into this research just to confirm something that I already believe, mm-hmm. um, you know, or is my mind a little bit open is, uh, it's a great reminder for us. So thank you for those, those practical, those practical pointers. I will, uh, I'll link to those spaces in the show notes too, because I, I am yep. willing to bet there's a few listeners who are, are going to take you up on those recommendations. And looking for the opposite, this is one I just got, Tara Fitzpatrick, called The Death of Public Schools. Now, I just wrote a book about the future of public schools optimistically. Now, how can I be a real scholar and not consume a counter-argument to see if there's any validity and might I have some more insights? So I, I would recommend books like this, too. Well, thank you so much for for your time today. Um, Again, listeners, you can learn all about the way forward by heading over to the show notes. As you mentioned, you do a lot of work with districts, with schools in person. Uh, For somebody who wants to reach out and connect with you about those opportunities, what's the best way for them to reach you? Is it through your website, which will be in the show notes, or is there a different way? Uh, Solutiontree.com. They handle 90, most of my my, my stuff and connect with them directly. uh, for books, every Amazon, Solution Trees website, Barnes and Nobles, uh, and and just all the platforms for books. But if you're looking for PD, some technical support, I have associates that work under me because the work's become so big. So it's about the work and not about me. Except other people qualified to do the same things that I've spoken about. Solution Tree would be more than happy to support you. They're the publisher of all my books. We've become a great partner. And I'm stepping back a little bit, um, not doing as many days because I want to get a little. I want to last that extra thirty years. I got to get a little work-life balance. That's right. So I have a team that helps, and Solution Tree is poised to support you. Um, so I have my website, but I would highly recommend going to SolutionTree.com. Great, thank you uh, again, listeners. That link will be over there in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time today. It was uh, a great honor to be chatting with you. Thank you.